We're going to be looking at the Church of Christ. This will be more teaching rather than uh, preaching. Um, and in future weeks, uh, we may meet in the other room down there and have some of these um, evenings as more of a classroom setting so that questions can be asked in these things. Um, it's a wonderful doctrine to study in the Church of Christ, and especially in the day we live in, it's something that we all need to understand more fully. There's a lot of confusion about the Church and what the Church ought to do and what the Church ought to be. Uh, the foundation of that comes from Matthew 16 and verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. There's Christ's foundation words for the, 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 the very building of the church. That literally is the foundation of it. His own uh, being as the Son of God and that Peter's confession of him as the Savior and the Christ uh, will be the rock on which the church is built. Turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll read three verses from there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll just read the first three verses. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours, grace to you, and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So there Paul writes to the church of God, which is at Corinth. They are called to be saints, or to be set apart. Our final reading will come from the first letter to Timothy, Paul's letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, verse 14. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 3, verse 14. These things... I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. So Paul wrote instructions to Timothy on how he ought to conduct himself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground 
of the truth. And as we begin looking at it, I'll, the verse I have before me will be the one in Matthew 16. But you know the verse, and you can turn to it if you want to. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And there is the first reference in the New Testament to the church. You'll notice that in this morning's reading, in Matthew 18, there was a reference to the church too. That if your brother does not accept your admonition, tell it to the church. It's a very unique way of Jesus speaking. Um, the church had been described as Israel, Zion, the people of God, the covenant community of God. But they start to use this word, church. And that's what I want to begin looking at uh, with you. We'll see many things, I hope, if the Lord is willing and he sustains us. Um, we'll see a lot of things about the church, perhaps over eight or nine weeks. Um, but I want to start with our foundation and just ask the question, what is the church? So that we understand the answer to that question. And sometimes this body, this organization that is called the church, or we've come to call the church, is referred to as a kingdom. You know that. It's referred to as a body, a household. It's referred to as the bride of Christ. And there are some other names for it too, the family of God and these things. But mainly, these ideas encapsulate what the church is. The church has something to do with a kingdom. It's organized like a body. It's organized and behaves like a household with a family in it. And it is also a bride or a spouse that's married to someone. That's the way we speak about the church because that's the way God has told us to speak about it. This is the way he describes the church himself. And Jesus describes the church that way. Paul compares marriage to the relationship between Christ and his church. And he says, this is a great mystery. Um, the word church that the Lord uses here when he's speaking to Peter is a word that means assembly. So that's really what the church is. It's a great assembly of people. And the word is ecclesia. And you'll have heard that word. We use it in English, the ecclesiastical courts. The study of the doctrine of the church in systematic theology is called ecclesiology, which is the study of the ecclesia. And that word, it's very easy to understand. It's two words put together, and it tells us why God gives it this name. The word ecclesia is two words. The first word is ek, and then the second word is kalio. The word ek means to take out of something, and kalio means to call. So the ecclesia is a group or assembly of people that have been called out of something. They've exited something. The word ek means they come out, and they came out because God called them. And that gets to the very heart of what the church is. I don't know if you've heard that before, but that's the best definition of the church. It's a group of people that God has called out of the world, and he's placed them somewhere else. When Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church, that's what he's speaking about. He's going to call people out of something and he's going to set them somewhere else and build them up and increase them. So, 
we have to remember that, that we are called out of the world. And you'll see in the Word of God um, how this church, this doctrine of the church, goes right back to the beginning of time. It's not a new thing. It didn't begin in the New Testament. No doubt it took on a new life and size and character in the New Testament. But the church is one. You'll see that in the handout I gave you, which is our confession of faith, gives us an explanation of what the church is. And it says the Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect. And that word Catholic there just means universal. It's not the Roman Catholic but the original Catholic Church, which was the worldwide church. Um, And it doesn't say in our confession that there are lots of different churches. It doesn't say that there's an Old Testament church and a New Testament church, or a church in heaven or a church below. It says there is one church. Um, It does acknowledge that In one sense, it's invisible in paragraph one. The universal church is invisible and consists of the whole number of the elect. But in paragraph two, it says the visible church, which is also Catholic and universal under the gospel, is not confined to one nation as before under the law. It consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and their children. And it is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. But nowhere in the confession does it ever picture the church as different groups of people. That's the great doctrine of the church. There is only one real church. There are lots of claims around churches and lots of differences, but the biblical truth is there is only one church of God. There is only one church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And my point right now is that It has existed since the fall. God, in his saving purpose, has been calling sinners into this assembly, this ecclesia, since the beginning. And the church exists because of God's gracious purpose, because of God's, I mentioned it in the prayer, his covenant of grace. That's why the church exists. Earlier in the confession, it gives a whole chapter on the covenant of grace. That's the only reason we're in here tonight. That's the only reason we've heard the gospel. It's the only reason we have the Holy Spirit, if we have them. It all flows from that covenant of grace. It's the only reason Jesus was incarnate. It's the only reason that there's ever been a preaching of the gospel that God, before the world began and in eternity, he entered into covenant with his Son to save sinners and to build, to call and build a church. That's how sure the church is. It's not something that's arisen in history. It's something that comes from the very predetermined will of God before time began. That's how special it is to God. So it flows from his covenant of grace which is eternal. That explains why there is a church from the Garden of Eden onwards. If it's in God's covenant, you would expect it to appear right away, and you do. And it's this calling out into something else that builds the church and makes the church what it is. 
So, in Genesis 3, God went into the garden when he should have destroyed Adam and Eve, when he should have destroyed the world. He went into the garden and he called Adam out. Adam was hiding in the trees with Eve. And God, in his grace, he didn't have to, but he condescended, and in his grace and salvation, he said, Adam, where are you? He called, that's what he did to each one of us if we found Christ. He called us out from hiding in the trees. And Adam feels exposed, but God draws Adam and Eve to himself and begins that covenant family from the beginning, and their children then are automatically in the church. And you see immediately at the entrance to the Garden of Eden, Cain and Abel are bringing worship and sacrifices to God because there's a church there. That is the beginning of the church. Abraham later on was called out suddenly from Ur of the Chaldees. God said to him, get out of Ur of the Chaldees and I will bring you to a land uh, that I will give you. What does he say to Abraham? Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So even for Abraham, Abraham was a member of the Church of Christ because he was called out with his family from out of the Chaldees and he went on a pilgrimage following God the same is true for Isaac and Jacob. They were called out too. And then ultimately, the whole of the children of Israel were in Egypt. And when God established the what we call the Old Covenant, you have there a church being called out of Egypt. You'll remember the language when he gave the covenant and the Ten Commandments at Sinai. He said to them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I called you out just like Adam and Abraham, but as a large two million group of people, I called you out of Egypt. The prophet Hosea says, out of Egypt I called my son. And he's referring to the nation of Israel there. He's saying, this is my son. These are my adopted children. They have a special relationship to me. They're not like the others that I haven't called. I've called these two million out, and this two million is, these are my adopted, my formerly adopted son. And I, I will give them the privileges of my house as a father that they don't deserve, because I've called them out of something else. I've called them out of Egypt in bondage, and I've entered into a covenant with them, and now they are mine. So there you have the church, and you have it throughout the kingdom of Israel that he's calling people when he establishes the kings and the prophets and the prophets are preaching and the kings are ruling and establishing Israel, that gospel message was going out to all the nations. And we sing about it every week in the Psalms. The Psalms are not merely Jewish. They're always calling the Gentiles to come in. You'll notice that when you sing the Psalms. The, the call always is that God speaks through his church to call people out of where they are and to come into this ecclesia, this church of God. So when you see David ruling and you see Jeremiah preaching, you're seeing the church, the church that our confession speaks about. That is the church. Then they went to Babylon and then they were called out of Babylon too.
come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. They were called out of Babylon. And then when our Lord came, obviously there was a huge change and explosion. He called Israel, Jesus did call Israel to be that church. And you know that on the whole, they rejected Jesus. He did gather a small church out of Israel, but as a nation they rejected him. And he told them what would happen if they did that. In Luke 13, verse 28, he tells them as the son, uh, they, they are the sons of God. He said, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom and yourselves thrust out. But then they will come from the east and west and north and south and sit down in the kingdom of God. Now he's talking about the church. He's saying there that the sons are going to be cast out. The rightful sons, the, the Israeli sons that reject him are going to be cast out. But he's going to call in all of these nations to come in to this church. So when we think about the church that we love, the church that we're part of, the church of Jesus Christ, we need to know how old it is and what it is. And it is a group of people that have been called out of the world throughout God's history and called into this one body that you and I are now a part of. You and I are in the church because Jesus told the Jews they will come from the east and west and north and the south. And we are a fulfillment of that. The Jewish gospel has come to us. The message of the Son of God, who is a Jew, has come to us Gentiles. And he brings us in and makes us Jews. He brings us in where we should not be. He calls us out and sets us in his assembly. So that is how old the church is. Now I'm talking here about um, the visible church. Everything I've described to you there is visible, it's tangible, it happened in this world. You'll see that the confession speaks about an invisible church, which we will look at next week, God willing. That invisible church is all of the elect from all eternity that God loved and willed to save in Christ before time even began who he chose, as Paul says, before the foundation of the world. That is the invisible church. So the invisible church is what God sees as the fully saved church. There's no lost people in it, no hypocrites or false professors. It is the bride of Christ. Every single person in that elect, Jesus died for, and he's paid for all their sins and they are his brothers and sisters, and they are married to him, and they will spend eternity in blessedness with him. That's the invisible church. It began with Adam and Eve, and it's every truly converted person until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. So there's a lot more people still to be revealed in that church. Now, obviously, we, although we know that church... It's on this earth, and it's in heaven. It's one church, remember. It's on, part of it's here. Its feet are here. But its head 
is in heaven. It's one body, but the elect above and the elect below and the elect still to be born are one body spiritually. Obviously, we can't exactly define where it is all of the time. That's the problem. We rejoice that there is a bride of Christ, but we could be very wrong sometimes about who the bride of Christ is and who it is not. Uh, And we could make a lot of mistakes and it's dangerous. And the Bible recognizes that and so does our confession. It tells us the glorious truth that Christ has a one pure elect bride that truly loves him. But for God to work in the world, he has to make the church visible. He has to organize it. It can't be this invisible spiritual entity all the time. It needs to do things in the world. It needs to have buildings. It needs to have ministers. It needs to have elders. It needs to have members. It needs to have finances. It needs to have worship. It needs to have meetings. And it needs people physically to go out with the gospel and share it. So if God God is going to save people in the world... That is not going to be done by an idea of an invisible church that we can't always perceive exactly what it is. So God organizes his church on the earth in a visible way. And that's what the confession is speaking about. It says, yes, there is the invisible church. There is that side of it. But there is also a visible, physical, tangible church on the earth. And it tells us um, that you you can discern it, it, you can see it. uh, The confession says, um, it's all those, paragraph two, throughout the world that profess the true religion and their children, and it is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God outside of which there's no ordinary means or possibility of salvation. So it's wonderful that God has an eternal elect in his heart and that some of them are perfected in glory, some of them are alive right now and some of them are going to be born. But God establishes a visible uh, flesh and blood church on the earth that he preserves throughout every generation and you know that it's mixed. It's not the whole elect. It is... Everyone who's heard that call that all these people heard. He called Abraham, he called Israel, he called David, he called the prophets, he's called the Gentiles, but lots of people respond to that call. Some people respond to it savingly and other people respond to it for other reasons. And they're all gathered in to this organization and the confession describes it as um, those who profess the true religion. So there's a visible and invisible church. And when I was speaking there about everything that happened in the Old Testament and then Christ coming and organizing his church, I'm speaking about the visible kingdom of God. So Medral RP is part of that visible kingdom. It's organized by Christ. It has officers. It has worship. It has these things, and anyone who professes the true religion can be received into membership. This is one little corner of that visible kingdom. Um, The thing about that visible kingdom is that we can discern when it's there 
um, because it has marks. Um, that's all summed up by them saying that they profess the true religion. So that's a mark. If they don't profess the true religion, it's not a church. Do you see uh, the point? So in the Reformation, there were three marks of a true church. When we're asking, what is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? The Reformers would say, look for these three things. The true preaching of the word, the right administration of the sacraments, and church discipline. So if an assembly of people is gathered round the true, faithful exegeting of God's word and the right administration of the sacraments, which is a worship thing, and church discipline, i.e. the people in the church are concerned about living according to God's law. The reformers like Calvin, Luther, these men, they would say these are the marks of the church. So if there is a group of people claiming to be a church, but there's no preaching of the word, then we don't accept that claim. Perhaps they're preaching something from the Bible, but they don't believe that you should administer the sacraments. The Westminster Confession would say that's not a church. You cannot have a healthy branch that's connected to Christ that doesn't remember his death or baptize anyone. If you get rid of the sacraments, there is no church there. If no one is concerned about holiness, if there's no discipline, if there's no standard of living, but they preach the word and they give the sacraments, but everyone just lives as they please, then the confession says that has become a synagogue of Satan. So Paul said that to Corinth. He, he, lo- he loved the church in Corinth. And at the beginning of the letter he says, you who are sanctified, he's trying to be so positive, you who are sanctified, called to be saints, You are the church of God in Corinth. But then throughout the letter, he says a lot of things that says, you are barely a church. Because they had destroyed so many of the marks. And at the end of the letter, he says, I fear lest many of you have believed in vain. So, if you look at Ephesus, Philippi, these are good places to look for the marks of the church. If you want to see when it starts to break down, look at Corinth. Those are the three reformers' marks of the church. Let me just add something to that. I don't want to overwhelm you with information here, but it's important that we know these things. Our church, the Reformed and Presbyterian churches that came from the Reformation and came from the Covenanting period in Europe, the, the, the basis on which our church is built when they made a covenant with God in Europe, um, they would have had four pillars rather than three their four pillars were, this, this is the church, doctrine, worship, government, and discipline. And if you have those four pillars, you can build on that and have a very strong biblical church. And that is where our church came from. Um, this confession was written at a time, this confession was written during that covenanting period, And the four pillars are represented by what they spent their time on when they wrote this confession. This, what I've given you here, this is part of the first pillar, which is the doctrine. The confession of faith that the church confessed was the doctrine. But they also wrote a directory for worship, a directory for church government, and a book of discipline. 
So they had four, these four books. And that was them acknowledging these are the four marks. And we've spent our time explaining how we're to understand these four marks. Now the RPCNA has just um, flowed on straight from that. It's a, it's a direct connection. Our constitution our, is built on those four blocks. They're not precisely the same as the original four books, but they are the same four books. We have a, a book of doctrine, which is our testimony. We have a directory for worship in our constitution. We have a directory for government and a direct uh, book of discipline. That's our, our entire denomination is governed on those four pillars. Why? Because we believe that these are essential, not luxuries, but essential to a true church. It's important that we have the truth about Christ and his gospel in doctrine and the true preaching of it. It's important that we worship the Lord as he has commanded us to worship. It is important to govern the church as Christ and the apostles command. And it is important um, that the church maintains a level of holiness in its membership. These are the four pillars. Now you see um, in Timothy, when we read that together, that this comes straight from the Bible. Now let me just illustrate that for you. This isn't something that men um, at Westminster Assembly came up with. It's, it's from the Bible. So the verses I read to you for, uh, from Timothy. I write to you that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. And listen to what Paul says 2,000 years ago. It is the pillar and ground of the truth. That's it. Paul would tell you that you can't, you can't get any truth unless you join the church. He doesn't say that the church has a good opinion about God. He says that the church, with the scriptures, is the source of all truth about life and about God and about salvation. That's how important this church is. Filled with the Holy Spirit, governed by Christ, and it is the custodian of doctrine and truth. And then he gives an example of the doctrine. God was manifest in the flesh. He was justified in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world. He gives a confession. That's like the Westminster Confession. He gives a, a mini-confession of what are we to believe about Christ? And he gives it. That's the doctrine. But elsewhere in the letter, he tells Timothy how to conduct worship. That's an apostolic command. It's non-negotiable. He tells Timothy, this is how prayer meetings are to be conducted. This is what the men are supposed to do in the church. This is what the women are supposed to do in the church. He tells Timothy um, how to discipline people in the church. And even though Timothy was slightly younger than Paul, or even people in the congregation, so he said to Timothy, do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a brother and a father. But he tells Timothy, let no one despise your youth. Carry out discipline. Maintain discipline in Ephesus. Don't let them run riot. Maintain that discipline, because that is, that is your duty and calling. So there's the other pillar. And then government. He commands Timothy too. So this isn't something that theologians came up with in a book. 
This is straight from Holy Scripture. This is breathed by God. God cares about the nitty-gritty issues of how we worship, how we govern the church, and what we do with discipline and these things. I just want to reassure you that you are in a good church, a good denomination, and that the foundation of it and the constitution of it, these aren't the ideas of some men in Pittsburgh or some men in Indiana. These are not the ideas of men in the main. The very hub of our denomination is as old as the New Testament. We govern as Paul tells Timothy to govern. We worship as Paul tells Timothy to worship. And we believe what the apostles taught us to believe. That's how sure and how steadfast and how assured we should be about the church and the church we are part of. That it is founded on the scriptures. Um, So the church is an assembly of people, a group of people that God calls out of the world throughout history into an assembly to save, to perfect and sanctify. And he gathers a visible church, and I've just told you that this church has marks. It has signposts on it. How how do you know if um, the post office is delivering something to your house? How do you know if it's legitimate? You see, you see a sign or you see some ID. How do, how do you know if you're going to order something from Amazon or you get an email from Amazon? How do you know it's a legitimate email? How do you, when they're telling you to give your credit card information to these things, what, do you just give it all up? No, you, you check for marks. Does this email look genuine? Does it have the logo on it? Who's it signed by? The church is the same. Everything that calls itself the church is not necessarily the church. It has marks. And God has built a visible, almost clay-like, tangible structure in the world that we call the Church of Christ. And it exists in congregations. And its marks are its doctrine, worship, government, and discipline. That is precious to Christ, and therefore should be precious to us. It's old and it's called out. It's visible. And it is a formal body. And it is a mixed body. Let me just explain what I mean by saying that it's a formal body. This assembly, since God began to build it, It preaches a message and a gospel. That message goes out and people hear it. People like it. People think that's useful. People think that could do something for me. And they join the church. And when they join, they join formally. They're not joining the invisible church. They're joining, they meet with an actual session and they join a visible church that's organized in this earth. You can't join or leave the invisible church. The elect are in it and the non-elect are not in it. That's it. But the visible church isn't so much only that spiritual body like the elect of Christ are, but it's a formal kingdom that has to get on with work in this world. That means that when God sends out the call, lots of people are going to be caught in the net who aren't necessarily the true elect. Now, we know that. Christ taught it in his parables. We know that, don't we? 
they're caught in the net and mentally, emotionally, or even spiritually in some way, they like the message, they like the people. There's lots of reasons that I can't get into it, that someone would join a church. And the Westminster Confession says that they join it formally. It doesn't mean that they're um, born again necessarily. It doesn't mean that they are the elect. But it does mean that when God puts out an official call to people, people are allowed to respond to that and God allows them to become members of the church. That is acknowledged in this confession. The confession says in paragraph 2, the visible church consists, and it, it doesn't say it's all those who are elect, it says it's those that profess the true religion and their children. So all that someone needs to join the church is a profession of the true religion. At that point, it doesn't matter there's no way of a session ascertaining if they, you can't peer into their heart and see the word elect or not. If they profess the true religion and it seems genuine, if they read the Bible, they believe Jesus is the Son of God, they believe in the atonement, they believe that the cross forgives sins, they believe that they are sinful and that Christ is a saviour, and if they conform their life and join a church and they cut out a lot of their sins and they change their behaviour, and they tell people, I believe in Christ, then we call that a, a credible profession. So they can formally join. And we've all formally joined. It doesn't matter if we're elect or not. Um, all of us have formally joined this church. Jesus speaks about it. He says there's a vine, and the branches are in. He says some branches bear fruit, but others don't bear fruit, and they'll be cut off and cast into the fire. But the point is, all these branches are actually connected to Christ. And you, uh, you may find that strange, but what I'm trying to get across to you here about the visible church is that everyone who is in it and their children are formally connected to Christ, even if they're not saved, even if they're not regenerate. They have entered into a covenant with God, and they've entered into a covenant with Christ. So the moment you become a... So that's why church membership is no small thing. If you become a church member, you are joining the ecclesia. You are joining the kingdom. And you are now under that king, even if you're not regenerate. So you receive all of the privileges that Christ gives, and you have all the obligations that Christ calls upon you. So Christ tells the church, be holy. And it doesn't matter if it's the elect or the non-elect in the church, everyone is responsible to respond to that call and to be holy. That, that's amazing to me, that there are people connected to Christ who aren't saved. And we, can, uh, we can prove that. Um, Isaac and Ishmael in that original covenant family, Abraham was the one that was called and he had sons. Isaac was of the promise. He was a living branch. Isaac was one of the elect. We know that looking back. Ishmael was not. But they were both sons and they were both covenant members of the church. They, they were both what we would call baptized believers. They were circumcised believers. But the point is, it wasn't Isaac here and Ishmael over here. They were both in the church, and they were both expected to do the same things by God. 
because they both had the same father, Abraham. Abraham taught them both and taught them to obey God and to worship God. And God was in covenant even with Ishmael. Jacob and Esau, Paul makes that point in Romans. Jacob and Esau, twins in the womb, one was elect unto life and the other was elect unto damnation. Two sons, yet so different, but they are both members of the Church of Christ. That means that you, should, you expect more from Esau than you do of someone who's never been in the covenant community. That means you expect Esau to believe. That means you expect Esau to care about holiness because he's receiving the teaching, the same teaching uh, that Jacob um, is receiving. Esau went against it. He slept around. He was brash. Um, he didn't really respect his parents in the right way. He didn't respect their religion anyway. And he was really all into himself and very proud and arrogant. Um, and there were problems between Jacob and Esau. But the point is, they were both members of the visible church. And it goes on and on. Saul, there's all these other examples in the Old Testament. The best example in the New Testament is Judas himself. Judas was a member of the church. Not only a member, but put into office in the church. But he's a member of the church. And he, he, he professed the true religion. He was very willing to accept what Christ was saying at the beginning. Judas wasn't some imposter. Judas accepted what Christ said at the beginning. It all sounded good to Judas. Judas was willing to do what Christ asked of him. Judas was willing to do his duties. Judas was willing to travel far and wide. He left his home to go with Christ and his disciples. There's, there's the visible church. But when you look even at Christ and his disciples, you see immediately that there's... There's a difference between the visible and the invisible. Not even the apostles were all elect. But yet, Christ didn't treat Judas like, like he lived in the Amazonian rainforest or something like that. He treated Judas as a son of the kingdom. Judas was expected to behave as a son of the kingdom should. Because God gave him so much. He gave him his law. He gave him... Uh, uh, knowing Christ personally, all the teaching of Christ, all the synagogue teaching that Judas grew up with. He probably gave him godly parents. He was born in Israel, the only nation at the time that knew the true God. He gave Judas so much. And Judas was a branch. Judas was united to Christ in that sense. Not savingly, but he was in the covenant community and he was a member. He was connected to Christ. That is the visible church. So how careful we have to be when we look at these things because uh, the visible church, although it is the church of Christ and the assembly of Christ, we have to remember that the standard is a profession of the true religion with the expectation then that the person will conform their entire life until the day they die to that profession. But it doesn't always happen. Judas killed himself. And then it was seen very clearly, this man is, there was something wrong with this man. Um, so there you have 
the idea of the formal body rather than the spiritual. It's great to know and to even be assured by what God is doing in your heart and your life that you are a member of the invisible church. It is good it is good to see that and to examine it and test it and to see the marks of grace in yourself and to know if you have that assurance, which the Bible says you, you can have, you can have the assurance that you know the Father, that you know Christ, that you are sealed unto the day of redemption and that you are elect, you are one of the elect of God and you love God. It's wonderful to know that that invisible church is pure and it is the bride, and it is there. But we are also part of the invisible, uh, the visible church, sorry. We are part of that. Here we are, in the visible church. And we have to remember that people are attached into it by a profession of the true religion. But it's also their children. Their children automatically are part of that visible kingdom. That ecclesia assembly, that kingdom that Christ reigns over, our children are born into it. And that's amazing. They don't need to be called out from the outside in that sense, like Abraham was. Jesus has been so gracious to his church that he allows our children to be born inside. And they are born as members of the church of the visible church. They are born as members. We call them baptized members. And later on they'll need to profess faith, but they are born in a situation entirely different to all other children. And that's not even just true if both parents are Christians. It's true if even one of the parents is, is, a, is a believer and a member of the church. These children are little twigs and branches that also get immediately grafted in when they're born. And they're part of that body, that assembly. They're born and they have the privileges of that assembly. Paul says that even if only one parent is a believer, the children are holy unto the Lord. They are born in the same situation as Ishmael and Esau. They are born inside and they know a kingdom from the day they're born. And our duty as parents, and then their duty when they can think for themselves, is to respond properly to that kingdom. To respond properly to their king. Judas didn't, but we pray that our children do. To respond properly to the king. That when they are taught about their privileges and what God expects of them, that they acquiesce to that and that they love that. But do you see that? They're actually grafted in. They're part of this ecclesia. And that's, a, that's an amazing thing. So when we ask what the church is as we begin this study for a few weeks, um, we see that the church is old and it flows from the covenant of grace. It flows from God's saving purpose. It says in the confession in paragraph 3 
in the second sentence that they, they are given the ordinances of God. And then it tells us why the church exists. For the gathering and the perfecting of the saints in this life to the end of the world. That's what the church is for. Let's not make up our own definitions. The church is for the gathering and the perfecting of the saints. It exists flowing out of the covenant of grace as a visible thing in the world. The invisible church is known by God. It's up there. The visible part of it works its way in this world and it is to spread and gather people. And if they are saints, it is then to perfect them. That's why it exists. And it's been doing that since the Garden of Eden. Through Abraham, Israel, Christ, New Testament, until for us too. That is why there is a church. So I hope you care about that. You maybe come here often. You come here regularly. You're part of this church. And I wonder if you know why it is here. I wonder if you know why God has a church. That's what it's for. It's not to be part of something nice. It's not even to socialize. It's not to have something to do on a Sunday morning. It's not just to go to a Christian place rather than an atheistic place. The only reason God has a church in Meadville is that he wants to gather saints and perfect them. And I can just say biblically that if the church in Meadville doesn't do that, if it doesn't gather saints and perfect them, it will disappear. If it doesn't gather saints and perfect them, it will disappear. God has put this kingdom here to do that. To do these things. And we know that it's there by its marks and its pillars, by what it confesses. And we know that it is a visible, formal entity that looks for professions of faith and it calls people into official covenants and they join by covenant and the whole congregation is bound together in covenant and all the members of that church are then obligated to God to live according to the word of God and their children receive those blessings too. That's what a church is. Christ said, I will build my church. It is his. Even the unsaved parts of it, Christ acknowledges and he works with it. He allows the kingdom to have wheat and tares, but he has a great purpose for the field. He allows illegitimate sons and legitimate sons to live in the same household because he has a purpose for it. Jesus is the king over the entire assembly on this earth. And we don't know how big it is. There are millions of people in the churches. How many of them are true churches? But there is one visible church. One. And Christ is king over it, looking for those marks, looking for those professions of faith, looking for these children, and he relates to them now as members and branches and children of this kingdom. So we'll see in the next few weeks then um, something about the Bride of Christ, the invisible church, and then we'll begin to look at what it means that the church is a kingdom, the church is a family, and so on. The church is a body. We'll look at it from uh, these angles. Uh, but I hope that in looking at this foundation that it's given us some insight into this glorious um, assembly 
that you and I have the high privilege of being able to call ourselves members of it. Let us respect the Church of Christ. Let us honor the Church of Christ. We are interacting with a kingdom and Christ um, will take seriously um, how we deal uh, with this visible church that belongs to him. May God uh, bless these thoughts that we have had upon his word. Remain seated for a moment while I pray and then we'll sing from the Psalter. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, uh, we cling closely to that promise that you alone build your church. And we are relieved and in awe that Christ is the mediator over it, that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and that he is so great at this moment that he sees the entire church, the entire assembly on earth, and he knows its condition, and he supplies it with streams of grace, and he knows all of its fractures and all of its pains and diseases. And we pray, O Lord, that Christ as a great mediator and high priest would be at work in might from heaven and that he would guide us all in his church and that he would do his will in his church. We pray that we would look above our immediate circumstances and that we would behold on this Lord's Day evening that we would behold the face of the one whose face shines like the sun and from which face one day the whole earth will flee away. We pray that we would walk with this King of Kings and that we would know his voice and that we would see ourselves in light of him and bewail our sinfulness and that we would look upon him as an elder brother and saviour with his grace and his love towards his bride and that we would relish in that love. O Lord Jesus, do not be far away from us, but grant us your fellowship. You told the church once, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone will open the door and invite me in, I will come in and eat and drink with him and him with me. We long, O Lord, to have you at our table. 
and to know your gracious and loving presence. For you are our peace, and we need it. So we pray, O Lord, that as you promised your church, lo, I am with you until the end of the age. As we go from this place, we pray that you would be with us and that you would impress all of this word upon our needy hearts and souls and that we would understand something of the body of Christ. Bless us then and keep us safe and be with all those whom we love and help us in our homes and families. And may we serve you this week glorifying your name and looking unto you as our King. In your great name we pray. Amen.